Welcome to the Exponentially Me podcast. Have you ever wondered if we can work better, if we get along better, and if leaders can really influence that? In this podcast, these are some of the questions we will be answering. We'll be talking to some amazing people from all around the world, not just thinkers on this, but the doers, giving you practical information that can make you a better colleague and even a better leader. Hi, my name is Exton Deval. And recently I came across a quote from Henry Ford that said he believed that the only real failure in life was the failure not to serve one's purpose. Are you serving yours? Have you found yours? Well, today I'm talking to Adrian Savile, and I think he has. He became an investor straight out of his MBA, and that set the tone for the rest of his career. But that also meant at some point he had some information to share, and he really wanted to. So he started sharing it at Gibbs, the Gordon Institute of Business and Science in South Africa, where he's won the Excellence in Teaching Award 13 times out of the last 15 years. He likes to challenge his students with impossible questions and push them till they find the answer. And I think that's an interesting way of teaching. Well, I can tell you one thing. He's pushed my buttons and pushed me to think more clearly about things. And for that, I will be ever grateful. Well, in this talk, we start about talking on the investment club he started and how that became a career. We ask, is it good to push against progress? And is the role of organizations that are even for profit to be forces for good, to create purposeful change. We then go on to talk about inclusivity and how much space is there in the boardroom for that? How much do we allow for it? And what is feasible? We end talking about coaching and the importance of belonging. Well, without any further ado, let's hear from Adrian. Adrian, um, thank you for joining us today and taking the time. It's... Um I've been really looking forward to talking to you. It's great to be with you, Exting. Thank you. At the, one of the things that I found interesting is that most people do a degree in economics or in business and then go work for somebody. You didn't. Why? Well, um, why there were external circumstances and internal circumstances. So the, the way that I got to not work for someone was... As I was going through my education, I did a bachelor's degree, an honors degree, a master's degree, uh, a doctorate, um, and, and I did that, that academic qualification series essentially in a straight line. And as I was going through my doctorate, you know, I'm now in my seventh year or so of straight line education. I'm watching my, uh, my peers, my colleagues, my former classmates are now starting to get their first promotions. They... Uh, putting deposits down on homes, and I'm still a student. Um, and I had a growing anxiety that I was essentially becoming you know, unemployable, uh, that by the time I eventually qualified, I'd have, have a whole bunch of paper behind me, but no experience. Um, and a, a good friend of mine, sort of, I, I shared this with a very close friend of mine at the time, this anxiety, 
that I had no experience. But, you know, there's lots of things that you could do uh, which would evidence or demonstrate your experience. That, for instance, all of the people that you're talking about getting their first promotions and you know, starting to have babies or getting married, uh, they are sitting with um, investment needs and the investment world is very intimidating. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite hard to understand the language. Um, uh, very often the, the maths confuses uh, and you know, products are difficult to look into. He said, you know, why don't you set up like an investment club uh, and we get together people with a common uh, set of circumstances and we build an investment club for them. And I did that, 1994, uh, the first year of my doctorate and the first year of my, what I would call sort of official business experience. I set up this investment club. And on our first meeting uh, in December 1994, I had invited 10 friends to come and put in uh, South African currency as rand. So it was 10 friends to put in 100 rand. And to my absolute delight, 12 people arrived and they insisted that they were going to put in 200 rand. So that was my IPO, if I you know, put it colorfully, and my IPO was oversubscribed. It was very, very modest. We, you know, so we had 2,400 rand as our first investment. We went and bought a couple of businesses. We discussed the businesses. It was very much uh, sort of a, a debate and engagement. It was about educating people in investing so that they could understand what they were doing. Uh, fast forward uh, three years in that club, uh, had, I'd been successful in the investment strategy and over the next three years had delivered an investment return just north of 20% per annum uh, to the portfolio. And along the way, people had shown a growing interest. And by 1997, the pool of 12 had grown to a pool of uh, 100. And the monthly contributions had grown to about a million rand. So it had become a very, very successful club. And I qualified with my doctorate. And at that time, I went into the market to look for my first job. I didn't quite find my landing place. I, I, I struggled to find a place that I sensed would have the same purpose that I'd started to experience in the club that I had built. And almost went into sort of a fit of uh, or a state of mm, despair that, you know, there's no opportunity for me in the market. Uh, I can't find the right place. And this exact same friend said to me, but you're sitting, <laughs> the opportunity is right in front of you. <laughs> the opportunity is in this club. Um, and I went to uh, the regulator, uh, which at the time in South Africa was called the Financial Services Board. I applied to the regulator to have this uh, 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 business registered. And 1998, the, uh, the experience in the investment club became a licensed asset manager. Some part of that is circumstance. Some part of it is external. Some part of it is internal. Some part of it is just accident. That's how I got there. And so the business was formed in 1998. I think, I think you, you sell yourself a little bit short there. <laughs> A buddy of mine, Mark Durner, we our MBAs together. He is, started the investment arm specifically in agri-foods at Rockstart. And we had a chat the other day in the podcast as well. And he talked about 
how you need to find someone that has a passion and a drive for something that can persist. Mm. And it sounds to me like your inability to find another place became a driving force for you to look for something that would fit. And that made you open to the opportunity yeah. of doing something by yourself. Yeah, you know, I think you capture it. I think you capture it really well because, you know, when you look backwards, you you can retrofit it and you get a sense of, oh, well, that's why I did it. Um, I, I'm not sure that I had the sense of perspective and maturity at, uh, and I must have been 26 or 27 uh, when I started the entity. I'm not sure that I had, you know, this firm sense of purpose that this is why I was going to do it. I knew what I was about and why I was doing it and that there was this low level of financial wisdom amongst my colleagues that they were buying investment products and solutions that were actually mugging them, um, that they were being sold products that would never take them to the place that they imagined. And, you know, the great tragedy uh, in investment and finance is the most valuable ingredient is time and you cannot reverse it. So when you get to 50 or 60 or 70 and you realize, oh, wow, you know, I've made some bad investment decisions, there is nothing that can reverse them. So the only thing that can reverse them is by making sure or, or can avoid them is by making sure you can't get that time back. You can never get given that compounding ingredient again. It's gone permanently. And I think that's one of the great crimes of the investment finance industry uh, is uh, I think there has to almost be an insistence you know, of financial intelligence. I see that the state of Ohio just made financial literacy a compulsory subject in school. I'm not sure why that hasn't been done universally. Uh, you've got businesses like the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh, uh, which points itself uh, without, without uh, uh, any sense of doubt or without any compromise. It points itself unquestionably um, at uh, inclusive finance. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you know, you've got businesses that will sell products that don't have a hope of ever producing the promise they make. Uh, they sell it to people who don't understand uh, the product and credit extenders who will sell people f f financing agreements, credit agreements, where people don't understand the basic uh, principles of compounding. I think what is interesting, though, is the timescale that you mentioned, around about 26, 27. I think when we look at human development, the psychological development, when we look at, for instance, Erickson's model of um, of these phases of development, that's usually when our phase where major changes to the brain and growth and neuroplasticity starts to end. And okay. so, if you so, if I look at your peers that went into business, their business relationships and the way that they look at business and connected with people at business was established outside of academia and mm -hmm. yours was established more, I think, not in as much a relationship to, but more a reaction to. And if you look at that and see, well, this trust that you yeah. then built with people that were close to you created you for you the sense of we need trust in business, we need connection, we need, we need that sense of purpose. 
So that by the time you ended this really plastic period, you were set on a path of purposeful investment. And I mean, if I look, if you look at your career and if you look at what you've been doing ever since then, it seems like it's been an extension of that. Yeah. And I think in, you know, in two ways, uh, the one is, I mean, what you're describing is, uh, uh, you know, might be a generous uh, categorization because, you know, and that's why I'm saying some of this is accident. You know, I, I didn't set out at 21 to say, you know, here's what I'm going to do. But some years back, I actually found my business plan um, that I had written in, in 1997 was when I wrote the business plan to license the company in 98. I mean, it reads as comedy. You know, there's, <laughs> there's nothing what you, what you plan that has actually materialized. Uh, what you envisaged doesn't quite uh, uh, transpire. And it, there's lots of lessons in that about writing business plans and the importance of agility and business models and so on. But back to your observation about you know, the sense of, uh, of purpose. So it remains the case that this day I have sort of two hats uh, that I work in the investment industry where my work is about uh, making differences to the lives of my investors. Uh, and I now work in the role of um, uh, an investment specialist at a multifamily investment office. And that's looking after you know, wealth that's been established, making sure that it's protected against public enemy number one, which is not the tax person, it's inflation. Uh, many people get this wrong. They think that the biggest risk to their investment is, the, is tax. It's actually not. Uh, it's in your face. Visible every day, and it's called inflation. Um, that very often uh, wealth that is built uh, battles to endure when it passes through generations, um, and uh, almost inevitably, invariably, once people have you know, large balance sheets, they want to do good things with those balance sheets. They want to have impact and purpose. So that's the one way uh, that the investment. My investment career speaks to that sense of purpose and impact and contribution. The other is in, in the portfolios that I build and manage. And those portfolios, uh, without qualification, uh, are concerned over the last 20-odd years, without qualification, are concerned with investing in businesses that do, that do good things uh, and that do good. Uh, importantly, to be distinguished between... Uh, socially responsible investing and uh, 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 you know, uh, corporate budgets that are allocated to doing good, you know, social investing. Um, this is about businesses that have business models that are designed to do good. And you know, I've referenced the example of the Grameen Bank, you know, as a case in point. And we can find, we can come back and talk about many of these examples. Um but uh, if you, you know, if you make the distinction between a company like, you know, Quicken Loans, for instance, and a uh, and a a payday a payday loan business, Quicken Loans worries about the customer. What are you doing with your money? How do I know that you are uh, allocating this capital sensibly and responsibly, whereas the payday lender says, what's the highest rate of interest I can get from you and how quickly can I get it back and keep you on that treadmill? It's a very, very destructive. The second is a very, very destructive business model. The first is constructive. And the second point uh, uh, is the other hat that I wear is my academic hat. And 
that's the way in which you can contribute to changing careers and lives and paths through through teaching. I think it's that for me, what's really nice is to see that you basically live what you say. It's not your your what you say is what you, also what you do. There's a lot of people that uh, that have lip service to what they do. You're for me the embodiment of believing not just what you say but doing it. So, for instance, the the um, I remember there was this one company invested in actually this medical um, company that basically was set up that would have ambulances go and pick people up in in the townships in South Africa and just bring them to a place where they can actually get very good. Um, medical help at like a pittance by comparison to what everybody else is charging, you know? And I just thought to myself, wow, I I, I like where you're going with this. So, you know, there's lots of uh, uh, businesses that I've been involved in over the years um, outside of sort of, you know, those two primary roles that I've described. Um, you know, there's other activities that I get up to. Uh, I'm, I chair the investment committee of a venture capital firm. Uh, and those venture capital businesses are uh, trying to, you know, trying to do good things. I'm overusing that term. But uh, a range of things, um, uh, all the way from uh, retrofitting uh, hydroelectric plant uh, that sits turned off. Uh, lovely story. There's a hydroelectric uh, uh, generation unit that sits uh, under the Howick Falls outside of Peter Maritzburg. And it was built in the 1920s to power uh, an industrial plant. South Africa has suffered, and, and, and then South Africa went through a, a period of rapid industrialization, 1930s to late 1970s, even the 1980s, you know, leaving aside all political uh, uh, angles, just speaking about the industrial industrialization of the economy, there was this period of fairly impressive industrialization, you know, maybe for all of the wrong purposes, but that industrialization happened. Included in that was a big investment in, uh, in energy, uh, in uh, electricity generation, uh, that uh, meant that the hydroelectric plant was turned off uh, underneath the waterfall uh, somewhere in the 1940s and left there, neglected, unknown. In recent times, South Africa has got into an energy deficit where uh, we, we battle with energy generation. And there's this uh, curse called load shedding where parts of the grid are turned off uh, with increasing regularity. And one of these VC firms said, you know, we've, found this uh, unused uh, or turned off uh, hydro plant sitting under the waterfall. We need a couple of million. We can turn it back on. Um, And it's just such a lovely example of taking a lost asset or a stranded asset, a small application of capital, engineering brilliance, and you've solved the problem. The business that you're referring to, so that's through the venture capital firm. The business that you're referring to, is a uh, public healthcare, a uh, 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 public, uh, uh, sorry, uh, a primary healthcare uh, business looking after uh, a broad public base, where South Africa, because of its apartheid legacy, the atrocities of apartheid leave South Africa still 
with one of the most unequal societies in the world. If you want to see inequality, come to South Africa. It is an absolute social tragedy how skewed uh, uh, freedom from and freedom to is in this country. And uh, this primary healthcare business is able to democratize uh, access to healthcare at a fraction of uh, public sector prices and at multiples of public sector efficiency. And so here you've got this transformative business model with very modest allocations of capital can have extremely high impact. And importantly, you know, none of this is about we're just going to give the money away. These are for-profit businesses, the, the, the businesses that I'm describing here. And the, the, the power of this purpose is not only do you have a business that is inclusive and sustainable and impactful, but it is profitable. And because it is inclusive and sustainable and impactful, it's sustainable. Mm that's the that's the flywheel yeah and i think that's that, that i think south africa is for me and southern africa in general is quite an interesting microcosm it allows for almost necessity innovation but with a social purpose it, it's something that's much harder i think to get off the ground in europe because there's there's no the necessity is less although there's more capital available yeah and i'm not sure i would agree entirely with that or uh, you know or the part that i would sort of challenge is that it's it, it's maybe i misheard you but you know I, I, the way i interpret it is saying well because we've got all of these social challenges it makes the it makes building a business with purpose so much easier uh, or so much more obvious uh, and absolutely you know i would agree with that another of my favorite examples uh, is spark school stacy brewer's business um, uh, which uses the uh, Khan Academy and rotational teaching methods to square up to South Africa's uh, education crisis. And uh, the education crisis includes uh, this grossly skewed uh, access or lack of access to functional education. And if you want access to world-class education, you need to be, you, you'll go to a private school in South Africa, your, your ticket for that will be in the order of 10, maybe $20,000 per annum, uh, perhaps as much as thirty dollars or $40,000 per annum. You know, how many South Africans can access that? The 1%. 99% cannot. And what Stacey Brewer squared up to in, uh, in building Spark Schools was, how do I change that? that being the accessibility of the 1%. How do I make it broader? Now, it would be grand to say she's made it available to the 99%, um, but she has moved the price point of effectively private school education down to public school prices. So now, for uh, about $1,000 per annum, you can get access to this private school equivalent. So she's dropped the price by 90, 95% in terms of access. That's very, very powerful. The, and I'm making a long point of it because you've touched a, you've touched a button. <laughs> the reason why I think, so that's the reason why I think it is easier and I would agree with you. The reason why I think it is harder is because, or maybe not always obvious, is there is, there is if people are excluded and vulnerable, 
it's also a rich breeding ground for extractive businesses. It's a, it's a breeding ground in which businesses can be greedy and can prey on the vulnerable and innocent. And, and, and I can give you lots of examples of that. Unfortunately, I think I think you're you're touching on something there that is quite interesting because it when we look at praying, right, or extractive businesses, the, what comes to mind are criminal enterprises. Um, mm. And in the Netherlands, we're starting to see a lot of that happening as well. We we have a huge influx of. Um, especially drug-related crime. Um, and this we're talking about manufacturing and distribution. We're not even talking about usage, right? So, and the, a lot of that is coming from countries that were normally known as the drag capitals of the world. Um, but that's because the infrastructure is great here. There's a certain amount of tolerance. Mm -hmm. And um, it's sort of like, yeah, as long as it doesn't really affect people, who's really batting an eyelid on that? And so that's been the cultural thing in the Netherlands, and that, that creates its own issues. I don't think we, we – um, the Netherlands, even as a first world country with loads of access to everything and a lot of fantastic stuff, and the Gini, the Gini coefficient is, is, is not really an issue here. Um, but I think there are certain – when you look at people that are do extractive stuff or criminal enterprise – they will always find a way to abuse and the society and, and the people that's um, around them. Uh, what I think, what, what, what I me more meant, I think, in, in South African context is when there is a necessity where you feel the passion, where you feel the drive, or you see an injustice, or you see something that you go like, oh, yeah. this is something that needs to be fixed. Um, yeah. when you connect with people and you have a sense of so, of social connection or community, it almost feels like you have to in a way. And that's one of the things that I see a lot in, in places like Alexandra, for instance, in South Africa or Greifontein, which is, yeah. which is close to, to Gaborone. Um, there's a sense of community and the sense of being in this together. I mean, for me, one of the most amazing financial constructs is a stock fell where you mm, where mm, everybody mm. puts money into a kitty and you trust that in 12 months when it's your turn you're gonna get your bet you know and everybody just, yeah. donates money into that and the first month the first one person gets it and the other 12 people have to wait for their for their month you know and yeah. or the other 11 people and so that is something you don't see in many other countries in the world. And that sense of trust and community and, in a way, self-policing, I think, has a rich bed of potential, potential growth. If we can help people to, but as you say, understand what investment is, understand what it is to take that money and do something with it that has a future benefit. Yeah, look, you know, there's people who are far better equipped to talk about uh, stock fells, you know, than I, than I am. But, you know, just to venture a couple of uh, thoughts on this. So, uh, you know, the, the, the way that the stock fell works, you've described it well, it's rotational saving. Uh, so 12 of us get together. We all put a thousand in at the start of the month. 
and in the first month person one gets it and the second month person two gets it and so you have this sort of windfall month uh, where it's your turn uh, the where the opportunity is could perhaps be improved and I don't want to say the opportunity is lost because very often stock fails are designed in very often not always but very often they are designed in fragile circumstances uh, where people have modest incomes they live close to or at the poverty line, perhaps even below the poverty line. So they are, they, 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 they very often are constructed in circumstances of financial fragility. Where, where the opportunity is lost is that the way that that capital is applied is it's, it's, it's just used for deferred consumption. Mm. Um, and that it's the exception that it's actually used for investment purposes. And you have to wonder what could happen if you started to establish even a small pocket of this was allocated with investment purpose, um, not just deferred consumption. I think that, I think that where, where I saw that as a as a sense of hope and not just something that is for immediate consumption was when I talked to Leon, um, this guy that took us to Alexandra when I was there for the MBA exchange mm -hmm. program. Mm -hmm. Um, Leon's education, his tertiary education, was paid for by Stockfell. Mm. And the, mm. the, the families involved then all rotated and helped to pay for everybody else's kids to go to, to university or to do tertiary education as well. And it was expected for those kids to come back and do something back for the community. So you yeah. create a multi-generational wealth plan, I think, and, and, and generational wealth um, by doing it together. And I've never seen something like that before anywhere else. And I thought to myself, this is, this is quite beautiful. Yeah, yeah so, you know, the, the, these types of um, participatory finance, uh, inclusive finance, uh, and, and, well, I mean, the, the Dutch have a long, long history of financial innovation. Uh, the Dutch were, you know, right at the front. Uh, so there's elements here that are not uh, inventions, um, but perhaps innovations around some of that financial uh, invention that belonged to the Dutch. And this, of course, is uh, this is like an insurance scheme um, that I know that there is a likelihood that my child will need education at such and such a date, i.e. I know there is some likelihood that my house might burn down. Um, and when that event materializes, the pool, the community is there to ensure you uh, against that event. So, you know, there are elements of financial innovation, financial ingenuity uh, in this. And we're describing or discussing here the bluntest form uh, of this model. Um, uh, and there are uh, instances or examples of, I think, quite impressive uh, innovation uh, in South Africa's financial services. Uh, an example that I can give you is uh, investing into um, uh, uh, livestock, where culturally, uh, the livestock and Parts of South African culture uh, are regarded as a uh, uh, an aspirational asset, um, uh, especially cattle. But uh, buying cattle is expensive, 
and uh, uh, looking after them uh, is is a specialist skill. And for many people, especially urban dwellers, uh, you know, it's, uh, the the cow's got to stay there while I stay here. Um, and so we were involved a few years back, uh, not in investing, but in uh, uh, helping grow the early parts of um, uh, of a business uh, that invests in livestock, but does it in a fractionalized way. So if a cow is worth a, a thousand, uh, you can buy one thousandth of a cow and you can slowly build your ownership uh, of the cow. And as the cow is you know, fattened uh, for slaughter, there's your compounding effect. Um, uh, I won't carry on with the story because it doesn't end well for the cow. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, that's, the, that's the investment principle. And because the, the livestock is an aspirational asset, it also makes it that much more tangible than if you own some share in Bitcoin or some share in uh, Tesla, mm. you know, which is untouchable and hard to see. But if I tell you, you own half a cow, you know, that's much more tangible. You're talking, you're talking to a farm boy. I, I, mean, I grew up with, with that. My, my first cow. Oh, you get the culture. My first cow that I had, I got as a gift from my grandfather. Um, okay. Just the first um, cow or bull that were born um, after your birth or on your birthday ah. became yours. Okay. Right. So my, because my grandfather had a cattle farm. So um, I got a cow. Right or a heifer, and then um, my dad did artificial insemination for my grandfather. My, I said to my uncle, and I said, "Okay, so can I owe you the money for that? But can you inseminate the cow? All right, or the cows?" As later on, because I mean, my grandfather just sort of went like, "Okay, this one had one, let's get another one." And so, so whatever or the offspring with yeah. the cow was also mine. And so it just when I was sort of my eight ten, I was saying, "Well." How do we do this with artificial insemination? Do I owe you? Can I sell a cow and get more of that? You know, because I hear you guys talking about this is the better route to go. So, and by the time I got to to high school, I had a bit of a herd, <laughs> and so one cow became many. And it always has to make me think when, yeah. when people start talking yeah. about cows, it has to make me think about these these jokes about the um, economic models expressed in cows. Um, <laughs> Indeed, yes. <laughs> so for me, that's always had this sort of connection, <laughs> yes, real yes. tangible connection. I know what a cow looks like, yeah. you know. Um, but anyway, so we're digressing. I want to talk to you about something else as well. You, um, except that I know that you're very passionate about what you invest in, and and the the these purpose driven almost investments that you do. How do you explain that to students at um, at the uni? Because I mean, you kept up your academic side as well. I mean, once you start, what you um, had in your twenties, academia and business, and starting your own business. I mean, it looks like it's one track that's just continued to this day. So, what do you do on the other side? Uh, it's a passion project. Uh, I absolutely love teaching. Um, you know, and maybe it's the universe playing a prank on me because I was not the world's best student. I don't think 
I gave my teachers the easiest time. Um, but uh, the universe has made it my purpose that uh, alongside my investment, I must teach. And I, I, I find the, you, know, you can give so much back to society. They say in economics, there's no such thing as a free lunch. I disagree. There are free lunches. And giving back to society through teaching is an example of a free lunch. Um, and, you know, that teaching might be in classroom. Uh, it might be supervising a student's research. It might be having a coffee with a person who's struggling with finishing their degree, battling with a particular course, uh, or finishes their degree and says, you know, I want to go and start a business, or uh, you know, I need some mentorship or guidance. There are so many ways in which teaching uh, parades. You know, it's not just in the classroom. The way to think of it, obviously, though, is in the classroom. And um, I just get a tremendous reward, satisfaction from seeing people go through very transformative uh, experiences. I teach at a business school, so it's almost inevitably MBA students that I'm teaching. And when they arrive uh, early on in the two-year program, uh, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, in good shape because they've just come out of a December holiday, and uh, you go into the first winter of discontent and there's frustration and disillusion, uh, stresses, anxiety, families missing in action, workers unrelenting, and what pops out the other side is a person who has been through a transformative experience in many, many levels and layers. In classroom moments where you can actually see people's eyes go, it's like the aha moment, it's like, wow, I get it. Um, syndicate work, which goes from uh, people challenging their teams and constantly seeing problems to going being taken across the line by their syndicate, you know, the power of the community, uh, the, the very, very lonely experience. Or, yeah, yeah, I think I've got the right word there. The lonely experience of your research where there's only two people who really know what you're doing and it's you and your supervisor. And you might know more than your supervisor. I mean, you've done this. You know, you know how. So it goes from you know this community, this lonely. Maybe two o'clock in the morning, someone's reading a paper, and they're like, "This is what I want to do with it for the rest of my life." So there are so many ways in which this classroom experience is much, much more than uh, than classroom. But being being able to teach, I think, is such a privilege. And the way that perhaps my teaching uh, really translates is that I bring to the academic component, the experience component that I've built and run a business over 20 or so years. And that practical experience, I think, brings an element. I think for me, you're talking about transformative stuff. At, um, when I did my MBA, there's a few things that, that stuck with me. As you say, the best are you the best student? Now, I, I scored quite well on most things. But there was a specific aspect that had to, that was my passion, which is people. 
um, so teams and organizational behavior and things like that, that I didn't yeah. score that well in because it was just as we were going for our exchange program in South Africa and I was running a little bit behind and I was organizing a lot of other stuff and passed it with flying colors, but it was one of my worst subjects. And I just thought to myself, but this is something that I really like. Why, why did I score so badly in it? And I, and, mm. and I started thinking about all the stuff that I've been reading over the last uh, 15 years of going before that. Um, how, Went like, but I want to do more with this. So eventually, it became almost like this the, the, this passionate belief that I have to prove that I can I'm better in this than I am, um, or than I was at the time, and that became my thesis. It, it, and the connection between people and the impact that it has on performance, and eventually, in this case, when I was studying sales. Um, but for me, the one thing that was missing in business is when we, when, and in the business schools in general, is when we teach people, we teach them about how to do stuff. And here's a button you can press. And here's the stuff you can measure. And you as a person need to grow. And we teach them all of that. But the one thing we don't do is we don't ask them, so how are you going to help others to grow? And here are the skills that you need to take a team and make them grow together and as individuals. And that became my business because I thought, well, this is, this is where my heart is. Why is this not happening? You know? And so people like you, Patrick Flood, in this case here in the Netherlands, became, um, I mean, he's actually from Dublin, became my inspiration in that because they are, they were my teachers and they asked the questions that when I came up short on the answer, went like, ah, this is what I like. This is what I think needs to happen. So but if you can talk, can talk a little bit more about that, what, do you, what, is, what, is, what makes you happy? What makes you think that this is making a difference or what you're doing is making a difference in students' lives? Uh, what makes a difference? You mean in terms of the the teaching that I do? Or? Well, let me phrase, phrase it differently. If we, you mainly work with economics and finance, and if we look at yes. that as a basis from from an educational perspective or from a knowledge perspective, um, and the prosperity that can come from that, and the potential well being, mm. and 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 um, we talked before about people's happiness. Yes. How does that? How do you get people there? How do you get them to think about it in that way? What a great question. Um, you know, I think that there's two, there's, there's at least two things you make me think of here. The one is about we, we live in an unequal world. Very often, in a, uh, or increasingly, it is argued that the way to look after societies is to build walls. The, you know, I thought that the nationalist sentiment that was growing uh, through the last decade uh, was going in the wrong direction. What I spectacularly underestimated was what um, the pandemic would do to sort of national sentiment, vaccine nationalism, uh, putting up borders, red listing countries, uh, excluding people. Uh, the world has become far more walled and bordered in the last 10 years and even more so in the last three years, two years uh, under the pandemic. And 
you know, that, that, that to me, that's one way of thinking about uh, or, or recognizing that we're actually not in this against each other. We're in this together. And very often when people arrive in, I better not lose my second point. I, I've got to, <laughs> I'm going to put a peg in that. But my, you know, the first point is about so often when you start a conversation about economics, it's, okay, what do you believe? Uh, and how do you think the economy is taken to a better place? Here's what I believe. And now we're pitted against each other because we're going to debate good policy versus bad policy. That is almost inevitably, invariably, where economics starts and often ends. There's a fierce debate about policy. I think you've missed the entire point. What are we trying to do? Can we can we start with that? And that is where my classroom discussion about in economics starts is what are we trying to achieve? Because if we could agree on what we regard as our purpose, where are we headed? Then then we can worry about how we do it. But can we first agree on what we describe as well-being? And so my question to MBA students is can you describe a, a prosperous a, a, a country, a country that's doing well? And of course, they, they immediately default to uh, the US. You know, the US is doing well. Why? Because incomes are high and unemployment is low. Uh, and that's a lovely uh, jump off point because we can then ask, you know, th that then begs the question, well, are those the two things for your individual happiness. If you if you have a job, A, i.e. you are employed, not unemployed, and B, if you're earning lots of money, are you happy? And well, hmm, maybe not, because I might be dealing with uh, a, a disease. I might have cancer. I might be type 1 diabetic. I'm type 1 diabetic. I can tell you it makes me very unhappy. Um, you can give me more money. It will not take away my diabetes. It will leave me, you know, money will not solve that problem. Um, uh, you might be going through divorce. Uh, you may have lost a family. You know, there are so many things. You might live in a, you might have been a victim of a violent crime. Uh, that's endemic in South Africa, violent crime. Uh, so tragically in South Africa, not only is there, lots of crime, but crime is particularly violent. Um, you know, there are so many things that start to feed into happiness. I, I'm describing the negatives. You know, let me describe the positives too. When was the last time you went to a football game and saw uh, your, your home side win? And, and you attended a football game with your children. Uh, when was the last time you sat on the couch watching a movie or read a beautiful book? When did you go for a walk with your partner, holding hands, uh, sitting under a tree? You know, all of those, and those are unmeasured by GDP. Mm. Yeah. I think what's interesting is on, on that point, do you, are you familiar with applied positive psychology? I am not. Okay. Martin Seligman um, at Penn um, in the US was at one point the, I think it's the American Psychological Association's president. And he started, he sort of gave this first impetus into this movement called, that's now known as applied positive psychology, where the ba basic premise is psychiatrists and psychologists fix people, but how do we get people to flourish? So if you take people from a minus okay. to a zero, like most medical practitioners do, they get you, they don't get you healthy, they get you not ill. 
And there's a, there's yes. a difference between that and the trainer, for instance, is going to teach you how to use the weights or something like that. You know, as you can see from me, I go to the gym every day. I mean, um, <laughs> talking about diabetics, we shouldn't go there. <laughs> um, <laughs> But there's a few things that, that, that I like what Marty has done. I mean, the, you might have heard of the theory called flow, which is Mihaly, yes, Mihaly started with that. And I mean, he came from Hungary and he, he was looking at how, what makes people flourish after the Second World War. He didn't want to go through that process again. Um, he recently died, unfortunately, but he's, he, he did some interesting work on flow and flow has three aspects to it. The one is the difficulty of the task that you're involved in. And the other side is the skill that you can apply. So if you can apply the highest possible skill to a task level that challenges you, that is where you hit flow. But what people tend to forget is there's a pre prerequisite to this, and that is self-motivation. So you must be willing to start the task in the first place. And people tend to forget that to get a team or a person to flow, that needs to happen. So back to applied positive psychology. Um, so there was also these, these questionnaires developed to see what is happiness. And Martin's first book is Authentic Happiness. Um, and then he didn't like, by the way, he didn't like the title. And this book, Flourish, he writes about the fact that he didn't like that title. Um, but it Flourish is more a way that he says that they wanted to do it. And they, they started implementing that, I think it's in Bhutan that they started asking the question, yes. right? And so Marty and his team and, and the people that work around him have been involved in that. And Ryan Nimick started this whole research group or institution foundation actually in the US. We can measure those things that when you do them makes you happy or otherwise known, otherwise known as values in action. Yes. And so yes. when, when we look at that, how do I get my values into a mode where I can flourish? Then we definitely look at measurables, but at the same time, also things that are not necessarily financial. And so when you were saying people yeah. getting unha being unhappy, I mean, what, what people tend to forget is there's a large chunk of the population in the U.S. that have two or three jobs just to get by, right? Yeah. The, the, yeah. They, yeah. They're living on the breadline but working themselves to the bone. And is that also what we want? I mean, South Africa, is this, this is huge violence, criminal element, but there's also this, 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 this historical inequality that you need to find a way to solve. Whereas in the Netherlands, since the 1970s, huge investments in education and, and, and changing the economy went from a sort of like industrial nation to a service economy. And financially, yeah. I mean, we've, we've never been more prosperous in the Netherlands but we've never complained more. It is. <laughs> it's, it's really weird. Yeah, you know, so money, do, money doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. But, uh, th there's two things that you make me think of here, you know, in your observations. The one is, uh, so the Mountain Kingdom of Bhutan uh, replaced measuring gross national product with gross national happiness. And happiness you know, should not be confused with that fleeting feeling of, Oh, you know, this makes me happy. Uh, you know, a, a new smartphone, um, uh, a new car. That's ha you know, that's happiness. That's fleeting, and it passes. Uh, when uh, economists refer to happiness, you know, what we are referring to is this innate sense of well-being, satisfaction, and purpose. Uh, and in staying with that thought, and in keeping a comment on South Africa. It happens to be the case that 
one of the core contributors to purpose is that you are in a job and you are doing something. That you wake up uh, each day with a sense of I'm going to something and I'm making a contribution. Forget about how much you're going to get paid for it. And uh, it is the case that South Africa's youth unemployment rate sits more than 60%, 6-0%. It is an absolute, I would describe this as a crime against society, that we are in an economy with a 60% youth unemployment rate. You have to know that this translates into all types of bad things in society, starting with a very, very high level of unhappiness in the social collective, how do we fix that? And, and the, you know, and that's when you start getting into those conversations in the classroom, people sit up with a sense of here is motivation. I've got a purpose here. And that then takes me to my second point. So if that is the society that you live within. If those are your external circumstances, you said flow has three ingredients. The first one is then that's the motivating factor. We need to change this. And, the, and I use this teaching method. So I actually use the flow method in my classroom where uh, I, 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 people are often surprised by the extent of their knowledge and skill and ability to become economists in the space of a, uh, of a course and to think like economists, but also to challenge them, to put the, the challenge in the territory of what seems like improbable or even impossible. And where we finish the economics course that I teach, it is specifically designed to build solutions for what start as impossible tasks. And we finish with, wow, this is actually doable. And not only is it doable, we can agree on what we are trying to achieve. And economics moves from being this opaque, uh, oh, sorry, you know, sort of hard to access, misunderstood, distant, intangible subject to this matters a lot to me. I understand it and I can do something. I think what's, what's interesting there is when you, when you mentioned the, the well-being, on one hand, it, it sort of you have the motivation to, to go do something, as we said, with the flow model, but then the well-being on the other side, how do you measure that? And I mean, Bhutan talks about happiness. Mm. Um, I think what's interesting with Marty's work, what came after that is when he started talking about flourish, he created this model called the PERMA model. And the PERMA model is about posit experiencing positive emotions, engagement for E, positive relationships, the R, meaning, and accomplishments or achievements. And I think that when we... when, when if I, even if I go down to, to, to a, to a township in South Africa, I love Alexandra because it, 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 it's changed. It's, it, it's cultural makeup has changed. When I remember it from the nineties where there's a lot more violence to where now it's much more cohesive in a way in, 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 in and more, more community based. And I see there things like people are engaged in the community. There's positive relationships that people are forging. They're finding meaning in, 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 in how they engage with each other. They celebrate their accomplishments. They, they don't mind showing it off or telling people about it, you know? Um, and that, to an extent, creates this positive, positive emotion. So for me, it's almost like the PERMA model in action in a society or in a microcosm where financial means is not the primary driving force. Mm -hmm. And so 
So that just makes me very hopeful that when we, when we help people to achieve this ability to find purpose, find engagement, find, find ways of celebrating what they achieve, it, um, we can help people to flourish. We can help people to, to find something in life that's more than just the money. I, I love this, this reference to flourish um, uh, because I couldn't agree more you know, about the, the, the purpose is not to fix but to flourish. Um, you know, fixing is, is a component along the way. And in this conversation, I, you know, I'm also thinking back over the, our various talking points. I hear myself, you know, coming across as um, very negative, you know, in some regards, commenting in animated ways on negative aspects uh, of South Africa, um, you know, the tragedies of apartheid, the deep scarred youth unemployment, the the, the gross inequality, and so on. Um, what none of that should be confused with is the extraordinary progress South Africa has made from where we were as a society uh, 30 years ago. 30 years ago, South Africa was a deeply broken place um, that stood an exceptionally good chance of descending into civil war. Um, and that that did not transpire. And where we are today uh, remains the stuff of miracles. You know, and, and that shouldn't be lost in this conversation. So without question, you know, there are parts of our outcome that we should be celebrating and that indeed you know, are examples of thriving and flourishing uh, outcomes. But there is much, much, much that still needs to be fixed. I think it, what, when, when you say that, the, you also... Let me let me just do a short recap. I'm busy working on a on on, on a speech which I'm going to be submitting to TAD. But it, the basic premise of it is I've been through so much. So we use the word shit in my life. Okay, growing up in South Africa, um, everything up to including waterboarding, and so you you've experienced so many negative things, but yet my outlook on life is not negative. Yeah. On the one side, the other side is the why do we do these things to people? And so for me, in, in, in the pandemic now, it, it, it's brought a lot of those things to the fore. Why are we so negative to, towards those around us? I'm, I'm not talking about even nationalism. I'm talking about at, within a country, having these huge fights about v being vaccinated or not, where, where it almost becomes a matter of principle to say no to something we don't even know all the facts about. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like it's all these emotive responses that, seems to be devoid of logic. I'm kind of like, why do we do this? You know? And so I had a long talk with, um, with John Molidor about it. He's, um, he's professor of psychiatry in, in uh, also Penn. And he's, we talk about group forming and basically so that in the first three, first nine months of your life, you start associating everything that is basically beneficial for you with your primary caregiver. And no matter what the primary caregiver does after that, you will forgive them just about anything and everything that they do is okay. And everybody that mm -hmm. doesn't look like them is a group. 
And they went further and they didn't just look at, at different facial structures or skin colors. They even did it with, with monkeys. So they gave kids of three months old, they were exposing them to monkeys and they could distinguish individuals. But by nine months, they lost that and the monkeys also became a group. So if we see everybody that is not looking like us or actually like a primary caregiver, which often looks like us, um, as human, but as a group, I think it can explain a lot of the problems we're running into. But how do we break that mold? How do we create that reaching across across to other people that doesn't look like us? I mean, I was I was lucky because I grew up in South Africa, so my nanny um, was native or, or black woman, a Setswana woman, and so Letta is like my second mother. And so for me, I grew up looking at multiple facial structures, and so when I see pain. In a black face, I can recognize it. But when I did it, when I went to China, I couldn't. All of a sudden, the faces were like blank to me. I couldn't understand what the hell's going on. Right? I eventually spent some time sitting there next to a, a lake in the middle of Beijing, just looking at people and finding f- body, body language that I could associate with facial expressions to see if I can figure something out. And one of the things is teenagers in love. You know, they can't keep their hands off each other. So that's also true in Beijing. Um, and so <laughs> then you start looking for the facial features. Can I recognize them? And, and, and <laughs> so for a three, four day period, I started learning a bit more. But I'm just wondering, are we, how, how do we create that conversation? The conversation that, it, it, that I think in, in, yeah. in an academic environment, we can, we can have this kind of conversation, not because we need to convince each other of an argument, but because we can have the argument for the argument's sake to evaluate and to check and to test. They say if you want a really, really uh, uh, colorful uh, dinner conversation, put up your business school two by two. Uh, Pro-vac, no-vac, pro-choice, no-choice. Um, and <laughs> sit back and watch. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's a silly example, but it just, hopefully it illustrates, you know, how quickly um, uh, we polarize. That, which camp are you in? Uh, Pro-vac, no-vac, pro-choice, no-choice. And there we go. We, we, we polarize. There's our nationalism going, right, we, we're starting to build walls. Yet everything we know uh, about, uh, you know, our research our understanding, our observations, our participation as individuals, as communities, is that the collective is stronger than the individual, that the community uh, is the, I would venture, almost the ultimate uh, metric of well-being, and that enterprises, entities, communities that are diverse and inclusive are much happier, healthier places. Why is that then not our primary motivation? If, you know, if, if that's all of the evidence, why do we behave in ways that polarize and oppose and build walls? Mm. You know, that's the thing to solve. Um, and we, you know, we see this in so many places uh, that um, you know, all the way from board levels, you know, through uh, 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 classrooms down to uh, you know 
sports teams. Imagine building a sports team you know, made up only of uh, goalkeepers uh, or defenders. So, why? You know, we can see the basis for diversity and inclusion everywhere else. But then when we bring it into our existence, oh, is like, well, no, you know, hang on. You know, that somehow doesn't translate. That, I think, is one of our primary purposes to fix. And, and there, is a, there is a very alive social collective that recognizes this, that is alive and growing. I think what, what I saw in, in, in business is two sides to that. One is an almost xenophobic approach to anybody that doesn't speak the language that you speak. That's something I experienced here in the Netherlands, yeah. where it's just, it's just easier not to have to think about any other language except Dutch. So we speak Dutch and then yeah, everybody that's not willing to learn the language excluded. You know? um, although 92% of the population in the Netherlands speak a form of English or at least understands it to quite a high level. And you've got to, that's one of the highest in any country, um, even countries where there's English speakers, you know, you, you can have your doubts about that. So, um, and then, uh, and, and yeah, we do that exclusion thing, you know, and the other side I saw is a competent a-hole is mainly not a competent person, but an asshole, you know, and you, you see that as well. So we bring in people from a diversity perspective. I think there's, there's, there's a hidden element we're not looking at. And that is, will these people actually get along? Mm. As people, mm. not on their skill basis. Yeah, it's great that you're a fantastic goalkeeper. But if I, if I absolutely hate you as a person, I don't want to work with you ever, <laughs> you know? And it, it's so, yeah. so I don't care what your religious, cultural, whatever background is. If I don't really, if I don't like you, I detest you, I'm not going to work with you. So how do we bring, break yeah. those boundaries? Because one of the things you were saying is when we, when we look at perspectives, so basically just, um, um, yeah, the, 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 let's say for instance, vaccinations. I mean, that's already a polarizing element, um, but it's not visible. The moment you look at people's everything from facial facial structures to, to skin color, it's a very visible thing. And so it's very easy to to split a, split a group into that. Go like, okay, when we look at a group, how many women, how many men are in the group? How and then we do another segmentation. So, well, what are the what are skin colors? And then you do another segmentation. So the moment you end up with somebody being alone in a category. Um, they have no voice because whenever they they, yeah. they voice something, they shut down because the rest of the group just goes like, "Yeah, you're the other one out." And we see that with, I see that with behavior as well. So some of the stuff we test for um, is how people, what people value, and when those when we find that people have a this a person that has certain values and not, nobody else shares that in the team. They feel excluded because they f never feel heard because nobody else understands why they're passionate about that bit. Shouldn't we look further than just, are you a good goalie? Yes. I mean, and, you know, you're taking me a little bit out of my, you know, this is not my area. You've taken me out of my comfort zone. Um, 
you know, I, I, I do work in diversity and inclusion. Uh, I've done a lot of research with one of, one of my co-authors, uh, Professor Charlene Liu. Um, we, we work on inequality, uh, and, and, you know, that's about uh, exclusion. Um, there's, uh, there's a few things that you, that you flag here for me. The one is that, no, you, you know, you, you, you don't just want a good goalkeeper. Uh, you want a good goalkeeper that you can get along with. Um, and, and that's about the sense of community and belonging and well-being. Uh, whether it's at, you know, at home. I mean, homes are made up of all types of differences. Homes are seldom, you know, the same person, you know, in uh, repeat five times. Uh, homes are diverse. Uh, and uh, but the powerful home is where there is this diversity and a sense of belonging and inclusion. You know, I'm here, I'm home. Um, this is where I belong. This is where I can participate. This is where I'm safe. And to me, that's the definition of inclusion is you feel safe. You belong. You're psychologically safe. You're emotionally safe. Uh, inclusion is not just you pitch up. That's cosmetic. Um, and you know, to, to evidence how easy it is to establish exclusion, one of the games that I play in my uh, investment finance class is I divide the class by their birthday. Uh, is your birthday on an even day or an odd day? And I put all of the even people on one side of the room and I put the odd people on the other side of the room. And I ask them to form opinions about each other. There you go. You've got... You've got You've, you've established uh, attention. So these divisions are, are, are very often artificial. Uh, they are quite easy to construct. And the moment I've divided the room, they're not quite sure why they're divided, but they know that the other is the other. And, and they are expert then on why they are stronger than this other group. So this, this I, I think I've made the point. The other is... Um, is that you know when we look at teams and the performance of teams, another uh, exercise that I use is called the marshmallow challenge. And we use spaghetti sticks and marshmallows and tape. Um, uh, there's, there's some lovely stuff on this in design teams, uh, CAD. And um, the, the marshmallow challenge has you balance a marshmallow on top of the tallest possible spaghetti tower that you can build in 20 minutes. And what uh, one of the great learnings of this marshmallow challenge is, amongst others, one of the great learnings is that diverse teams do much, much better than, uh, than monochannel teams. Uh, so all the way from boards to businesses to baseball teams to marshmallow challenges, diversity wins. I think what's what's interesting there for me in, 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 in trying to explain that, um, there was a study done around cognitive empathy um, in the U.S. I can't remember which university it was now, but they looked at complex problem solving and various makes up makeups of teams, um, and eventually they came to the conclusion that in general women. Teams with more women were able to solve more complex problems. Yeah. Um, and so they were like, yeah, but 
how do we explain this? All right. And so eventually they started testing for stuff. And one of the things they figured out was cognitive empathy makes the difference, which is your ability to see that somebody else is feeling something or in an innovation or problem solving team that you can see that somebody else has an idea or is sitting with something they would like to say. And so the, the teams with high cognitive empathy, the amount of ideas that actually came to the table were more. Yeah. And I think what's, what's even more fascinating is that test was originally developed by um, Sir Simon Baron Cohen um, in the UK. And he then teamed up with 23andMe and they looked at what kind of genetics can they apply to this because his study is people with autism. And what they actually found out okay. is there's a bell curve. On the one side, you've got people with autism and people on the other side, which I like to call super seers. You know, people that are, they know what you're thinking even before you're thinking, actually, when you, what you feel, you know. And so if we know that there's a general, a, a genetic component and that women tend to be slightly better at men with the same genes, there's also a social component to it. Why aren't we testing for stuff like that when we're building teams instead of just looking at the superficial diversity? That, that, that that's more lip service, why, why can't we just say, well, you know what, let's look for those people that are high in their cognitive empathy and mm. bring them into the thing because they're going to make a real difference in getting the team to work better together. If, and, and if you do that, what you will stop noticing in the fullness of time is the diversity because the team is actually then an inclusive team. Um, uh, if you artificially construct the diversity, we'll take you know, one of those, one of those, one of those, and there you go, there's your diverse team. The, the moment you take this diverse team into a stressed setting uh, or into a social setting, the diversity will quickly disappear uh, and people will polarize. So I think you're absolutely on the money that you have to, that this has to be not just, you know, constructed, here's your diversity cocktail, but that's the point of inclusion is that I get on with these people. I want to work with them. I want to be with them. I belong here. I'm psychologically safe. Um, uh, the, the, the other element that I think is uh, really important here, and I've seen this in my wife's work, is that uh, when you have these safe teams where you've got diversity and inclusion, and the sense of purpose and belonging, that's where the greatest innovation happens. Uh, it's where it is, it's where people are willing to venture ideas, to, to be vulnerable, to try stuff. This is where you get the most uh, out, of, uh, out of businesses. Um, you know, and, and, and the stuff that has come out of, uh, my wife's name is Tashmir uh, Ismail, and she builds uh, inclusive business models. And this is, you were speaking about this earlier, Exine, you know, businesses in um, uh, Alexandra. Uh, so when you visit Alexandra uh, initially, you know, what you met with all, the, all those years back is very little industrial activity, uh, high unemployment rates, uh, low levels of employability, um, little uh, diversity. It's, uh, you know, uh, demography uh, is very, very similarly shaped. And um, 
what she builds uh, with her team uh, is business models that square up very impressively, boldly to that challenge. Fast forward to today, and what you find going on in Alex is hydroponic plant, where people are building vertical farms, uh, growing butter lettuce and strawberries and farming tilapia in a township setting, and the offtake goes to food lovers market. Mm. So it's fantastic. You've turned a township into a food exporter. I think what's, what, 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 what for me is fascinating about that aspect is, except for the production of food, it just reminds me of something. What is really weird is Alexandra is, I mean, as you know, it's a hop, skip, and a jump from Santon, I mean, which is some of the most expensive yeah, real estate in, in the whole of Africa. Uh, but in Alexandra, just to get out from the middle of Alexandra to the edge to do your shopping, because there's very little shops inside, and the shops that are inside yeah. are um, much more expensive than the supermarket just outside. But it's going to cost you if you just yes. want to buy, go out and buy a packet of cigarettes, you buy a pa packet of um, matches or or a candle or two. The transport cost to get out and come back is more than the product you're going to buy. And so we, we tend to, in, in, living here in Europe, where I can literally walk 50 meters that way, and I'm in a supermarket, I walk 70 meters that way, I'm in another supermarket, okay? We do not understand distance, we do not understand the cost of travel and the, and, and the cost of time, because now I have to spend extra time if I've got to walk there because I can't afford it, and then come back again. So now I've lost and time, and I've lost money more so than somebody that's living in a more affluent area. And so it yeah. is more expensive yeah. to be poor than it is to be rich. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And so for me, when you're talking about a flourish, the well-being, the investment, um, getting people to understand, to, to shift their paradigm, to, to see the opportunities and the compounding factors – do you think there's a way in which we can bring that to people that do not have the money to get you an MBA? Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the projects that I've been involved in over the last 10, almost 15 years uh, is a, uh, a model that is designed to identify the ingredients of prosperity. Um, and uh, we call it uh, the six-factor model. Uh, when we started the work, I, I didn't quite know, you know, that what we would call it today would be big data and machine learning. Uh, but that's what we started 2008. Uh, we gathered uh, data for 160 countries, 60 years of data, um, 1,200 line items per country. And those line items are as different as infant mortality rates, uh, number of uh, girls that finish high school, um, unemployment rates, kilometers of tarred road, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's just 1,200 line items. And we threw these line items into a big pot and we asked the machine to trawl through the data and find the things that correspond with countries that transition. Uh, transformative societies, they move from low income to high income. Uh, they move from low life expectancy to high life expectancy. They move from exclusive to inclusive, et cetera. That's what we call a transformative, or that's what we described as a transformative society. And the machine comes back with six ingredients. 
interestingly, education is one of them. And we, and we sequence those ingredients. So is there a download order? Um, they carry different weights. The ingredients are elevated savings and high investment rates. High savings funds, high investment. Gross domestic fixed investment. So productive investment spending. The second is demography. You actually want more young people in your, work, in your population than old people. Uh, aging populations can't transform, transition. Young populations transition. Uh, you need stable policy, not good or bad policy. Uh, an important message, and that for economists uh, uh, and policymakers everywhere. You need stable policy rather than good or bad policy. Um, openness. No country has got rich by building walls, so you need connectedness. But that openness uh, is not just pull down the walls and everything will be okay, because pull down the walls and you might have colonization, slavery, uh, and uh, resource extraction. So it's uh, a functional openness, win-win openness. Uh, and then uh, education and healthcare. Interestingly, up to uh, 2020, when I have presented the six-factor model to, um, to executives, to classrooms, very, very few people have stopped me at healthcare to talk about healthcare. It's usually only the health professionals that want to talk about healthcare. Yet we've had it in the model for 12 years, uh, and 2020 made it clear just how important this investment in healthcare is, underlining the fact that healthcare is primary healthcare all the way through to tertiary healthcare, as well as psychological uh, health, uh, social uh, uh, and psychological health. But you, and I'm making a long point of responding, but I, I, I did want to couch it in this context that education, you're saying, you know, do you need an MBA to be able to do this? So we find that education is our sixth ingredient. Interestingly, education carries one of the lowest weights. So education in and of itself isn't a transformative ingredient. It is a participatory ingredient. It's a coincident indicator that education doesn't lead to transformation. Education coincides with transformation, and in some places, it's actually a lagging indicator. So you can't educate a population and they all decide how they're now going to make the place a whole bunch better. In fact, they might just spend all of their time debating and writing papers. Um, <laughs> but the education is actually a coincident uh, indicator, and healthcare carries a higher weight than education. Mm. I find it fascinating. Absolutely. It, it's when we look at mental health, for instance, there's, I think one of the things that, that, that struck me in the last two years is that when we talk about leaders and the purpose of leadership, recently somebody told me that a manager's purpose is to ensure productivity and that at that level of the organization, there is prosperity being generated. Although one deny it, I don't think it's the only thing. <laughs> and how we get about it <laughs> is maybe, I think, more crucial for me. If we, we've been pushing people in, especially in industrialized or let's say westernized societies to be highly efficient and effective mm. to the point where mm. we were running just the breaking point. So people were just stressed enough so that there might be some performance benefit 
but it was basically if we push them that just a little bit too far, we get into burnout and and people become less functional for at least a year or two and yeah, might have yeah, a permanent yeah, yeah. effect on their mental health. And and then we got the pandemic and all the pandemic that went like, and it just pushed every, a lot of people over that edge. And so we see performance drops, 40 to 60% performance drops in teams because they do not have the ability to deal with the situation. The moment you have that ability impact, your, co your executive functions are impacted because the cortisol just helps you to focus and not think cre creatively. So task initiation is down. Planning and prioritization is down. Creativity or different thinking is down. Um, emotional responses and controlling emotional responses and feeling things very emotionally, all those are things are down. So all of a sudden the whole team starts falling apart. And so for me, when I look mm -hmm. at leaders, I'm saying, well, but le as leaders, if we're responsible for that ultimate performance, then in today's society, we need to understand that we're important, what the, the importance of mental health and our responsibility as leaders in mental health. In, in every company because we don't have 10 years to fix somebody that we broke in the weekend you know so yeah. and yeah. when are we going to start taking financial responsibility for this or just emotive responsibility so one of my new pet peeves or let's say new new, new little slogans is leaders are hope creators and when we're not we're failing because yes. for me, optimism is seeing something that is positive in the future. Yeah, I can see there is a possibility. But hope is when I help people find the path to get there. And the moment I can do that, I create a hopeful society and a hopeful team. The moment I destroy the path, I get a hopeless team. And when people are stressed, yeah. the first thing they can't do is think creatively. So they ask, give me clarity. So the moment you get in mm -hmm. a team, like there's a rise and give me clarity, give me clarity, give me clarity. Tell me what to do. Tell me precisely what to do. We need to know that team is under duress and stress. Yeah. yeah. And then as leaders, we need to find the path. We need to say, well, there's that future. This is how we get there. So if we can see that future. How can we shape the leaders of tomorrow to turn them into hope creators, into people that find those paths? From, from an economic perspective, for instance, what, what do you think yeah. can we do? So, 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 so three very quick points. I think businesses that do this will, will, will thrive over the others. That There will be a process of almost natural selection. Um, and uh, I... Recently, was in a conversation with uh, uh, with a business that has uh, hired uh, coaches in that uh, all of the team has access to a coach uh, to help them deal with uh, the stresses. These are spectacularly changed times um, for many people, and uh, you're pushed you know, out into the water. Good luck, you know, make it work the other side. Um, what has the business done to support you? Um, and surely it's in the business's interest to do everything possible to make sure that you you have a sense of, uh, I keep using the term, but I cannot emphasize it enough, that businesses in which people have a sense of belonging, they are going to naturally be innovative, they're going to be problem solvers, they're going to be constructive, they're going to be contributors, and the business might measure that as productivity and profit. But 
that will be the result. Um, the uh, let me not get too carried away on that, uh, but you know that would be the first point, and I think that those businesses self-select that, the, and through a process of natural selection, they will come uh, uh, to the top. Um, the the other is uh, the example that you make me think of is uh, the Deve Development Bank of Singapore under uh, Priyush Gupta, and. The way that Priyush Gupta solves problems, always a team-based approach and very, very diverse teams, uh, throw the, the diverse teams into a pot and say, here's the problem, I'll see you in two days, solve it for me. Um, there's the sense of purpose, uh, we, we're in this together and we've got a problem, now we might be as a diverse team in a state of flow. Uh, you can also do this artificially, and I don't mean I don't mean this as a negative observation on Piyush Gupta. I, I think that the management uh, and his strategic foresight is absolutely brilliant. What I mean by artificial is that you can put these constructs in that will encourage or promote. And so he does two things. Uh, one of two things at the start of each year, you must choose as a KPI. You must either do an employee journey or a customer journey. So you must go through the experience of what an, one of your colleagues does as their job. And man, this takes us back, Exine, to your point about empathy. If I have to learn your job, suddenly I've got a whole brand new lens. I'm, I'm, uh, 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 um, uh, I have a sense of empathy. And the same with a customer journey is how many times have you been... Just last night, I was on a, uh, with a company. I was trying to solve a travel problem. They shall remain nameless. And I was thinking, boy, if you received this treatment, you, you, if I worked there, I would be ashamed. You know, so make you the customer and experience what I experienced. It's like, okay, I've got to fix this. Mm. Now we start to solve together. And then the last thing, very, very quickly, is, um, uh, is I've recently uh, written a report for the ILO, International Labour Organization, where I had the good fortune of interviewing five executives working in pan-African markets across industries to ask them how they have squared up to the disruption and the challenges and uh, uh, solving, resolving uh, to in, in ensure that they promote diversity and inclusion. I have a very firm sense that the, the things that these businesses are doing are going to take them to a much, much better place. And But those positive actions, you will get this reinforcing and shareholders uh, and analysts might measure this as productivity and profitability and they might see it as dividends, the people inside of the firm will see this as purpose and belonging. Mm. They'll show themselves to us. If you, I mean, you work a lot with leadership uh, or people that are studying towards leadership positions. If you were to give them one tip into forging a team or forging a company even, um, that makes a difference, what would that be? Look, you know, I've, I've overused the term in this conversation, but there is 
there are few things that can sustain you uh, more than a sense of purpose. So, you know, what is it that you're about? Why are you about that? And how will you translate that purpose into some type of impact? Now, you know, it might not be immediately obvious and uh, may not be easy to storyboard or put into a business model, but you know, I'm trying to think of, uh, uh, let, me, let me make it very, very personal. My daughter has just finished school and I'm sitting stressing with what will she do? And you know, do we do you know, a whole bunch of uh, aptitude tests, uh, you know, some counseling? So what are we going to do? I think this presents itself. And this rewinds all the way back to my university friend who said, well, but what you're doing matters. You know, and you want to do it. So why are you doing what you're doing? And as long as we're staying away from you know, things that make the planet worse, uh, and we can confine this to things that make society better, inside of those parameters, find your purpose. I think that's a great point to, to, to remind people that, yeah, find your purpose, find your life, and flourish. Love that. Thank you for your time today, Adrian. It was always fantastic talking to you. So, yet again, thank great you. Great being with you. Thank you. Well, this talk with Adrian got me thinking. We talked about economics and that economics' primary purpose should be to stimulate well-being of the whole population. But what if we looked at the Earth's population? What is well-being? Well, I like Martin Seligman's definition in his book, Flourish. Use the PERMA model for that. Without going into much detail, it tackles the ideas of talking about how we can be our best selves, irrespective of where we find ourselves. What if we could do that for everyone? What if we, as leaders and organizations, can find those things that help our employees flourish and turn them into the best selves they can be? Could we all be happy together? Could we all find our purposes together? What would we need to achieve that? Is it the responsibility of government to legislate for it? Like we see in Bhutan, where they have a national measure of happiness. Or can organizations tap into the millennial or the youth and see how those things can come about for people that have not been jaded, not being recreated in an image that has gone before, but gives us new possibilities and new ways of looking at things. What do you think? Now go out there, be exponential, and do something nice for someone else. You can find us on the web by going to podcast.exponentially.me. We will also find additional media resources and some amazing insights.